So welcome to this podcast. I am Richard Cranfield. I'm a partner at Alan Overy, chairman of the Global Corporate Group. And in the past, I've been co-head of the Financial Institutions Group. Our guest today is Nick Ogden. I'll let him introduce himself. But by way of background, I think I would say he's a, a serial entrepreneur, a serial, very successful entrepreneur. And he's been very successful in the settlements and payment space in financial services and has a deep deep background and understanding of, of a lot that goes on in that space. So, Nick, why don't you just introduce yourself in a slightly more precise way? Hi, Richard. Thank you. Well, I'll try to. As Richard said, Nick Ogden. Some of you may know my name. I'm the guy who invented e-commerce back in 1994, building the world's first electronic shop in partnership with Barclays Bank. And actually what we did was we hacked Barclays systems to make that system work. So we're one of the earliest internet hackers for my sins. And that led me on to create a company which many of you will have heard of called WorldPay, which I was reminded last week was sold a little while ago for $43 billion, which is a lot of money. And since WorldPay, I've been involved in a number of other fintech startups, cash flows, Clearbank, which was the first new clearing bank in the UK for 250 years, and more latterly, RTGS Global, where we're looking at um, the challenges associated with interbank liquidity. Thanks, Nick. And in previous conversations, we've talked a lot about atomic settlement. And it'd be really interesting to hear in your words what this is and why you think it's so important to us. Yeah, it is. Atomic settlement is not something that's new, but something that has only recently become practical to operate on a global basis. If you look at the way that the financial services marketplace works, and in particular wholesale payments, and this is the movement of interbank money between different countries, nothing has really changed in that market sector for many years. SWIFT was created back in 1974, following the Herstat financial crisis, and really The whole global financial system revolves around one system, which creates its own systemic risk challenges, which you'll all be aware of. Atomic settlement effectively allows you to perform a transaction immutably in 300 milliseconds globally. And this technology is, uh, although it's been talked about for a while, has really only come of age as a result of cloud computing. And back in 2014, we started to build ClearBank, which was the UK's first new clearing bank in 250 years on a cloud compute platform. One of the interesting conversations we had with the Bank of England was when they asked me where we were going to build ClearBank and I explained we were going to build it in the cloud and everybody in the meeting looked out of the window, which is a true story. But cloud computing has advanced massively and atomic settlement allows you to basically have the Federal Reserve Bank in New York and the Reserve Bank of Canada or the Reserve Bank of Australia and operate against those accounts, what we call synthetic ledgers, which are referencing central bank money and to effectively confirm that funds are available in both central banks on behalf of commercial banks that they prudentially regulate and to effect a transaction between those two banks instantaneously 24 by 7 by 365 and what effectively it's doing is taking the wholesale payments marketplace from the digital dark age into the way that we experience the use of say simple search engines today. And so one of the things about that is this is a hugely ambitious macro change which Unlike some of the sort of fintech solutions you come across today, which are very precise and and quite targeted, I mean, this, it seems to me, has huge scope. And I think you did some work with the IMF or the World Bank about just how much liquidity could be freed up on this. 
Yeah, it does. I mean, the idea for this came out of really the work we did when we were building Clearbank, when we were fortunate enough, you know, working with the PRA and the Bank of England and the FCA to get very, very super amount of support and then access into the real nitty gritty behind the UK payments infrastructure. And what we sort of really realised was that there was this thing called financial friction. And financial friction is the cost of doing a financial transaction. And it's the delays that we all experience. You know, every single person listening to this podcast will have experienced the delayed payment. And the most frequently asked question of any banker is where is the money? It happens all of the time. And so we worked out that by delivering atomic settlement globally, we could reduce financial friction. And pre the start of the pandemic, I was in Washington DC at a meeting with the World Bank and the IMF. We were talking about the actual cost of this financial friction. We'd estimated it to be about 2.6 to 2.8 trillion dollars a year, which is a large number. And when we shared that with the IMF, they said they thought the number was wrong. And I panicked a bit. I thought, you know, underestimated it or overestimated it. And what they said was they thought the number I was quoting was low and they would come back with a number that could be quotable. And their estimate of the global cost of, of financial friction is 15 trillion dollars a year, which is a massive number. And that associates back to the cash flow impact, costs, delays in payments, all of the things that slow our global economy down. So when we're putting this together, it was pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. This, I think, has taken on an even greater relevance because if we can reduce financial friction costs, potentially we can speed up the economy. And that should then drive an economic recovery potentially faster and with greater liquidity than we would have anticipated coming out of a pandemic. In previous conversations, you've always said to me that your view is that innovation always follows a crisis. And obviously, we've had a perfect crisis in the pandemic, not unlike previously a financial crisis, but a perfect crisis to recover from. I find the concept of $15 trillion one which I can't really imagine, but that will have a massive positive effect, I assume, across the economies of the globe. Yeah, that's correct. We're not going to wipe that out in a year or five years or 10 years, Richard, to be honest with you. That's a massive challenge. It's a consequence, if you like, of banks moving to computerization, computerization, developing legacy. And the fact that in all honesty, the world's financial services really only operates for four days a week because of differing work times and differing times in the day. Atomic settlement and the way that 24 by 7 digital technologies deliver. For example, if you did a Google search today and it came up with a response will let you know the answer in three days. You'd think that's completely unacceptable. By transforming the way that money moves around the planets in central bank funds so that it's safe and secure, you then start to attack very, very quickly the costs of money movement and the delays in particular. And the delays impact cash flow and cash flow impacts investment. So you can see that once you start to release this financial friction, you start to create it almost like a snowball effect of improving all economies, not just the strong G7 economies. And so, I mean, where are we actually on this sort of this journey? Because obviously this is something which doesn't happen overnight. And I suppose the audience would be thinking, well, how would this affect me? And so I, I guess it starts with the central bank payment systems, and then they then help the private sector banks. But when do you think this will actually make a difference to the treasurer of a FTSE company who's tasked with you know, managing liquidity and, and, and funds? I think there's a number of steps, Richard, and I think it depends which country in the world your treasurer happens to be sitting in. Our expectation is certainly countries transacting in US dollar sterling and euros will benefit from this technology faster than others. That said, it's quite likely that 2022 will see the arrival of Japanese yen and other G7 currencies. Part of the, if you like, the challenge and opportunity of the rollout is 
there is not a global real-time growth settlement system. It doesn't exist. A number of countries have their own RTGS platforms, which effectively deliver high-speed domestic transaction flows, but not every country has that capability. And so whilst we can hook up the prudentially regulated banks relatively simply and get them up and running, you know, subject to their regulators being happy, it's going to take a little while for that to spin down to the corporate treasurer. That said, we have developed technology now, which is on test with a, a major partner of ours to actually enable banks to take effectively a white label solution with the RTGS global environment to enable them to distribute out to selected major companies, major corporates and treasurers direct access into the RTGS global platform. So I would expect it's going to be 2022 before businesses start to see the benefits of that. Then that will run through 2023 to 2024. But certainly I expect that by sort of 2025, which is probably significantly in advance of when technologies like this would have been able to get market penetration, and that's a consequence of the global pandemic, then I would have thought that certainly the G50 countries will have access to this capability and associated benefits that it delivers. And it's going to be a tag to currencies. And you mentioned, you know, US dollars, sterling, euros, at the forefront than the yen. So when you say the, the G50 back in 2025, that means them and their currencies. And so mm-hmm. at that stage, that is a huge, I imagine a huge proportion of global settlements and payments. Correct. When we were discussing this project over in Washington, D.C. with the IMF and World Bank, we said that what we would probably do is start and go G7, G15, G25, and then on down to deal with the major currency flows. There are rolling out a global settlement system, you know, effectively a new market infrastructure it is not without its challenges, many of which you'll be delighted to hear Richard associated with legal advice. But it is not a simple exercise putting up a new market infrastructure. I can imagine. I suppose one of the things is about managing something as broad and ambitious as this is you must need a lot of help to get momentum going. And you mentioned sort of regulatory help. I mean, it'd be very interesting to hear what you found when talking to regulators over the years as to how helpful they've been and how ambitious they are to make these changes and bring the benefits. Yeah, I've been very, very fortunate in my career. I've always developed and maintained an open dialogue with the regulators um, because my view of regulation is very, very simple. They're, they're here to help market change. And certainly, as many of your listeners will know, the UK has got a very, very different sort of type of regulatory environment where competition is the third mandate of both PRA and the FCA. And when we started talking about what we thought we could achieve with RTGS Global, our first discussion was with the Bank of England about how this system could work. And following those discussions, I then went off and did, it sounds rather glamorous, it was a bit of a pain, We did a world trip going around and talking to regulators all over the planet about what we were trying to build. And the reason for that was that anybody who's working in a bank will know that if you come up with a new product or service, you have to get regulatory approval to launch it. And I thought it was quite important with the project we were trying to take on that we made sure that we had not you complete but a certainly a certain high degree of support from various different regulators. So we went around, explained what we were trying to do and asked the regulators really for permission to carry on conversations with commercial banks in their country. And I specifically said to them, look, at the end of this meeting, I either want to have a red flag, you don't want me to talk to commercial banks, an amber flag, you want more information on what we're trying to do, or a green flag that we can carry these conversations on and keep you informed. And we got a 100% success rate in relation to the green flag option in supporting the conversations that we were going to have. Now, that doesn't mean 
that they endorsed anything that we did, obviously. What it did allow us to do was then to open up the dialogue with the commercial banks within the parameters that we'd set. Okay. And so how has the interaction with the commercial banks gone? I mean, I don't know, but I imagine that any ambitious new program like this will be carefully looked at by the major global banks who deal with a lot of the you know, movement of currencies and settlements around the world already. And they will be very interested, I imagine, but also they'll be quite probing as to whether or not it's really going to work. How did that dialogue go on? A couple of things came together. Firstly, go back to technology, if that's okay. We had to find out if this would work because it's all well and good drawing up on a whiteboard an idea for, to do, build a new market infrastructure, a new settlement system based around central bank liquidity, but then finding out whether you can actually shovel the transactions around the planet at the speed you need and the volume of transactions you need required a significant amount of technical legwork. We were very, very fortunate insofar as we were supported by Microsoft from both Redmond Europe uh, and elsewhere in relation to their appetite in also finding out whether their infrastructure would support transactions as we're proposing. So we spent about two years developing the technology, making sure that it would work. And we achieved that in August of last year, we knew the system was scalable. Concurrently with doing that, what we needed to do was also identify the target banks. And so we loaded onto our platform, this 44,000 banks globally that we believe this service is appropriate to. So we loaded all of those into our system and then formed a relationship between Microsoft and PwC to actually start targeting the major global systemic banks to actually go to them and say, look, this is where we are, this is the technology, and the technology is works. So it's not a dream. This capability that is something that we have already. What we'd like to do is to work with you on a pilot phase, an exploratory phase, to see how this works within your bank. And by absolute coincidence, the Bank of International Settlement published a huge report which they could have written around what we were doing, which was saying that now was the time for banks and regulators around the world to look at the costs and delays and, and experience that people were having in relation to the international payments transaction flow, which, of course, the international payments, either in a retail or business level, sit beneath and are part of the wholesale payments architecture that we were addressing as a market infrastructure. And Sir John Cunliffe, one of the deputy governors at the Bank of England has been very instrumental in that report. And it's been very interesting for us within our business to sort of see how what we've been doing at a commercial level is tracking what the Bank of International Settlement sees as a required market infrastructure change. And it's, we're just very fortunate that it's a coincidence. Is this basically for the private sector market participant in payment systems, is this all upside or is there a competitive threat here? Or do you think there will be consequences which come out of the rollout of this over the next few years, which people need to be mindful about or plan around? There's a couple of different consequences of this. You know, you'll hear and read frequently about financial inclusion, mobile payments infrastructure, and all of these other things that are going on within the fintech space, which we're not directly involved. However, the architecture and infrastructure that we're building allows those systems to run efficiently. So if you want to start operating true financial inclusion, delivering high-speed financial services, you actually need the market infrastructure to be able to, capable of supporting all of that. So until such time as the market infrastructure gets upgraded to a global 24 by 7 by 365 capability with what we think is important, which is liquidity versus liquidity transactions. Many of the other initiatives will be running in the slow lane rather than getting into the fast lane on the highway. I think then you get back to the economics, and that is whether banks will be happy that we've arrived, whether we're going to attack their margins, or whether we're going to force price competition. For our system to work, we have to work with prudentially regulated banks because we have to have sight of central bank reserves. And arguably, the 
improvement in customer service levels that atomic settlement and real-time liquidity deliver could well justify maintaining current pricing levels. And so what we are doing is very, very deliberately keeping out of the area of whether this is going to actually create a, a downplay in relation to transactional pricing, but really more focus on the improved customer service and the fact that banks would then be in a position to give to their customers a customer service level experience for payment transactions, which today no bank in the world can offer. So that's a very interesting thought, isn't it? Because once you get into the concept of pricing and customer service, you're in the world of retail impact, you're in the world of politics, you're in the world where many politicians still hold a lot of banks at fault for the Lehman crisis back in the 2000s. And so that takes you from the sort of the wholesale world, the technical world, one where, you know, you've talked about the regulatory support you've had into one which is perhaps less easy to navigate. How have you found that? And have you had sort of overtly political conversations around this? I think one of the interesting things you mentioned, Lehman's, is that had a system like ours operated in 2007, 2008, 2009, it wouldn't have prevented the last global financial crisis. But in, in the words of the Federal Reserve Bank in the US, it would have allowed them to unravel it much more quickly because they would have known where the money was. The liquidity is, is always visible. You know where the assets lie. I think when you start to get into the political side of this, it's an area which we have steered to a degree clear of thus far because it becomes quite complicated. But if you look at the way that you know, in Europe, in other countries around the world, there has been price pressure onto banks. This has largely been forced on them to create market competition, open up the market to new entrants. I think I think that the fact that this platform has to operate within between central banks and within potentially regulated banks to give it its integrity means that that political challenge is potentially likely to be less and it will be down I suspect to domestic politicians, domestic regulators to decide whether they choose to price cap certain services. But historically, price capping has been to encourage competition. And the whole focus of what we're trying to do is to improve customer service and capability and resolve the financial friction costs that we mentioned earlier. And by resolving those, if you assume it takes us 20 years to move 15 trillion down to say 5 trillion, we'll be taking out half a trillion dollars worth of financial friction costs a year, which has a directly positive impact on the global economy. So it would be difficult to see how price capping could match that level of reduction in cost because of the reducing financial friction. Okay. And sort of to stick slightly with the geopolitical angle, I mean, clearly under Trump, the US had a particular view of the world and had a particular relationship with for example, China. And it may well be, I think, the current US regime find themselves in equally a sort of relationship with some tensions in it. Does that affect the way that you develop stuff with the Chinese central bank? I mean, is, is that, how does that play out? I think it's interesting. I think there's been this discussion that's been going on for many years, which I'm certain you've watched with interest, of who's going to develop the next reference currency. Is the US dollar going to be replaced by renminbi? Is something coming out of Russia supported by Brazil and other countries, is that going to replace the reference currency? I think that the really interesting development potentially is the creation by central banks of central bank digital currencies to support wholesale money transactions because they have the effects of effectively reducing significantly credit risk in relationship to balances held by banks with other banks. 
Now, if that works, and that's a big if in capital letters, right, then the fact that credentially regulated banks will have access to CBDCs in different currencies that they choose to hold, that may well then start to challenge the consequence of creating another super currency. And while some markets are ahead in the creation of their CBDCs, I do see in relation to the wholesale payment infrastructure that acting as a real final, if you like, lid on the tin to take out the risks that exist in our in the financial services marketplace, which you know are Herstat settlement, foreign exchange and credit risk. We deal with the first three already and the CBDC capability, which we can already bolt in if, if CBDCs were available, removes that credit risk. And so overall, what you're then doing is creating a much more resilient global financials infrastructure than we've had ever before. And to take that thought, I mean, and central bank digital currencies, I assume that the whole debate about cryptocurrencies and stuff like that, which seems to be around, you know, sort of almost a trading scam, that will just, I assume, just get left behind by significant developments, which will just marginalize that. And so it becomes irrelevant. I think that's true. I think that cryptocurrencies were developed to provide increasing speed and capability and access to money 24 by 7 by 365 because the existing global fiat regime just doesn't do that, doesn't do that today. You know, the settlement capabilities and all the rest of it just don't exist. Most people, however, use fiat currencies. You can't go to, you know, the co-op or you go to the pub for, and, and pay with a Bitcoin or something. Just, you know, they're rare examples, but it's not universally acceptable. And I think once you have fiat currency that operates seamlessly globally, potentially interlinked to a central bank digital currency, it then does question the value of cryptocurrencies, but it may lead to the development of stable coins that are supported by the domestic fiat currency for particular market sectors. Okay. And wearing my sort of retail hat again, and asking the sort of same question about when, like I did about, you know, corporate treasurers, when will the man and woman on the street begin to see the benefits and consequences of these developments? That's down to market adoption. I would love to say next week, Richard, but there's the reality to that is it, these things take a while to work their way through. We've got to fix the global wholesale market infrastructure first and get that up to speed and get that, I, I say loosely, fit for purpose. But reality, that's true. And bankers who are listening to this will know that that is the case. Once we've got that fit for purpose, we can then effectively go down the value tree into retail payments. My expectation is that the business payments will go first, followed by retail capabilities because you should be in a position to make a digital payment with the speed and utility that you can hand a £10 note over, a $10 note over. And today you can't. You know, if we were sat in Suffolk today and I owed you £10 and I gave you a £10 note, that takes a millisecond to effectively hand that money over and the transaction's complete. To do a digital payment from where I am today to Suffolk is going to take much longer than that. And that's ridiculous. With atomic settlement, it becomes back to the same speed as a physical cash transaction. Okay, so I'd like to step away slightly from an atomic settlement and sort of focus back on Nick Ogden, because, you know, when I look at your career and the way you explain it, I mean, you've done several really major things and then done that and you seem to have moved on again. Now, so you're talking here about atomic settlement. It feels as though by 2025, this will be well underway. We'll have a momentum which is unstoppable and it will be largely adopted. So what does someone like yourself, what do you do next in terms of can you see other areas in this space where they're crying out for some 
creative thinking and some some change and and what would those be i guess is what i'm asking you uh, yeah I, I don't give investment tips i'm afraid richard but i know i know where you're coming from i think that the you know I'm writing a book at the moment. In fact, I've been writing a book for a long time and at some stage, you know, we'll get to it being finished perhaps. And it's a very, very simple title. It's called What If? And what I tend to do is look at something and say, what if you did that? Would that actually improve that service? And that's different to saying somebody's developed a service. How do we copy that service and make it cheaper, faster, better? And I guess if I have a knack, it's looking at the what ifs and working a business process out from that and then being very, very fortunate to recruit a good, solid, loyal team of people to work work with me to turn the the daft idea into a real business reality. I think there are lots of areas of opportunity that exist within financial services and and in other market sectors. And one of the things that I've done within my career, as you correctly pointed out, is I go so far with my role and then I let other people take it on and run it forward because my role is the creator, not the business runner. So by 2025, I'm certain that I will have come up with one or two more what ifs and we will see and if they are successful as the what ifs that i've done thus far but it's you know it's been an interesting journey and will continue to be one i hope okay and so just thinking about yourself as a serial successful entrepreneur what has been the things which have helped you scale up and be able to turn an idea into reality so what's the sort of microsystem which you think either needs to exist or you need to create around yourself for other people to contemplate doing similar things whether they're very large or or smaller I think my approach is relatively simple. My parents were from Yorkshire and Lancashire, so that sort of creates an internal family conflict before we go much further on that, which people listening to this may understand. But I always believe that you should ask the question and recognise that other people have got deeper insights and more knowledge probably that you've got. But if you ask the question, you can start to learn. One of the things that I found is it's very, very rare that people actually want to say no if you ask them a direct question. For example, when we were looking to set up Clearbank, my expectation was that there would be a political or regulatory reason why that was going to be impossible because nobody had set one up for so many years. Yet the reality when I challenged the payment service regulator back in 2014 as to why a new clearing bank hadn't been set up, she came back, Mary Starks, bless her, and said, look, you know, I've been round, checked or asked everybody about why a new clearing bank hasn't been set up, raised the point that you made over, was there a political or a regulatory obstacle to it? And she said, nobody can think of one, so have a go. So I think it's just being brave or stupid enough to ask that question, get the door open a little bit and then just push it forward and see where you get to. I never believe that a business that I set up will be successful. And I'm very, very fortunate to look back at my businesses and they're all still in, in existence today, which I think is a testament to the management team and probably not the creator. And so obviously your management team is important. You, you read stuff about the creation of unicorns and innovation. And, you know, you can see these maps and the West Coast of the States and uh, parts of Asia dominate. And, you know, the UK has hardly any and Europe's got even less. Mm. Do you think that part of the background, you know, I mean, you sit in Jersey, but basically sort of based in the UK, Europe. I mean, does that make a difference? And are there things which people who are involved in government, whether as civil servants or politicians, should be thinking about to make a better microenvironment for innovation. 
It's funny, I was, I was on a, a BBC Digital Planet podcast last week from Jersey based upon what we've actually achieved out of here. And a lot of the work that's going on from an island nine miles by five sat in the, in the, in the middle of the English Channel. I don't think it matters where you are, but I, does, I think it does matter what your outlook and understanding of the planet is. I've been very, very fortunate that I've been able to travel extensively all over the world and get to understand and see how different things operate. And that has been immensely useful. I think it's very, very hard to politically or from a government perspective stimulate innovation because it's down to the individual. It's not down to a policy. I do think that certainly in senior school and potentially into some universities, I do my fair share, I guess, of trying to help some of the UK universities in relation to some of their courses. An entrepreneurial input into that is potentially very, very useful and goes back to the thing I always say, and it's why my book's called this. What if you think outside the box? What if you do something different? You don't have to go down the road in a particular way. There's always a different way of looking at things. Okay. You mentioned travel and in the almost post-pandemic world we're entering. The two things which I think all businesses are, are grappling with is the return to the office, yeah. but also the return of business travel, because I think up to two years ago, a lot of us were on the plane a lot. And, and we've obviously had cause to reflect on, was that necessary and does it serve a purpose? But as you just mentioned earlier, by traveling the world and meeting people face to face, you've been able to kind of build up your own personal bank of knowledge and experience. And I suppose ultimately business travel is really built around that face-to-face -face meetings and improving on both sides, mutual knowledge. So do you see yourself hitting the road again on the planes to actually do that? Or are you now in the Zoom world or whichever medium you use? I'm in, I'm in the Zoom, Teams, Blue Jeans, whatever happens to be Google, whatever happens to be required world, I'm afraid. I've always believed in when you run a business, you try and run it very, very efficiently. It's just a I guess naturally coming from a guy who's a startup geek and you know we've always run thin businesses and you know I've never been concerned about whether we have everybody in the office people working from distributed locations is quite efficient and ironically you're looking for the output from the individual not a timesheet if they're the right person for your business so working virtually as we do now is the way pretty much I've run my business since the creation of WorldPay I mean WorldPay I used to use the top of a filing cabinet as my desk because we were so damn busy we didn't have enough chairs and so it, location doesn't really matter i think moving from where we are now and one of the things i've been looking at is the hybrid working environment which i think you're aware of richard is that you know a lot of people are concerned that going back to the old way of office working is actually going to slow them down. I asked a specific question on a survey whether they felt that that would be an inhibitor to innovation. And well over 60% of people said that they did think it would be an inhibitor to an innovation. Now, innovation is what moves the business forward and allows it to grow and continue to exist. So I think that we will end up going back to a hybrid working environment. And I think we will communicate it in different ways. And I think that opens up to a range of different working environments and communication environments. Everybody's got used to Teams and Zoom and all the rest of it, and it's the way that we work. But, but, yes, I'm certain I will have to get on aeroplanes and I will have to go to see people because at the end of the day, if the deal's that important, quite often you need to sit across the desk and look into somebody's eyes both ways. Absolutely. I mean, I think this has been the most fascinating conversation and very grateful. I mean, I'd like to leave the last word with you other than saying thank you very much. But is there anything else which the question I should have asked, which I hadn't asked or, or whatever? 
No, I, listen, Rich, I've really enjoyed the various conversations that we've been having and we should carry them on in some way, perhaps, set our own little mini-series up. But no, I think the major thing is I'm just a, a regular guy. You know, I don't have anything special apart from the ability to ask difficult questions, perhaps. And I think anybody on this planet is capable of creating change and driving forward an alternative way of doing different things. And it's just having the guts and the determination to get up, do that and stick at it. And lots of people don't stick at it. And it's the operational side of setting a business up, dealing with how the thing will work, which is complicated. And that's why I've always brought in teams to help me do that, because you need clever people to help scale a business out. Yeah, and I think to be to be absolutely fair, you also need the self-awareness of what you're good at and what obviously you're not so good at, Correct. and, and bringing in experts. And it's yeah, but knowing when you promoted yourself to the point of completing competence is very important. Yeah, I, that happened when I became a Lance Corporal in the TA many years ago. <laughs>